Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 101, Kuchuk Kainarka. First, I want to thank our newest Patreon supporter, Clint Dalton, but also all Patreon supporters because just three days ago was Patreon Appreciation Day. Now, for that day, I decided to record a quick lecture based on a lecture I gave at the University of Richmond, tweaked a little bit to be kind of better for audio, better for listening like this, about the history of the Second Bulgarian Empire and the Crusades and how the Second Bulgarian Empire affected the Crusades. Now, I gave it to everyone who is or has ever been a patron, and it's a new kind of benefit. Uh, I think it's at $4 or for any new patrons, but if you're a former patron or something, you, somehow you didn't get it, just reach out to me. I'll make sure you get a copy, but it is fascinating. Honestly, it's been a couple of years since I covered that period, and I forgot just how close Bulgaria came to becoming a Catholic country and basically how all of European history really hinged on what those crusaders decided to do vis-a-vis Tsar Kalyan. So highly recommend giving that a listen. Now, another quick note, something a listener brought up, the question of Moldova versus Moldavia. Now, Moldova is the name of the contemporary country, whereas Moldavia is the English name for the historic state, which has Moldova as its kind of Romanian name. Now, I've been using Moldavia because all the sources I've used up till now have used Moldavia. And from what I can tell, English-speaking sources don't really use Moldova to refer to the state until the 20th century. So for now, I'm going to do the same. But in case anyone was confused or wondering about that, there's just a quick clarification. All right. Now, last time, in the context of weak central Ottoman power, Sultan Osman III and his successor Mustafa III attempted to bring a more religiously conservative policy to the government, restricting the power and influence of Orthodox churches in the process. Additionally, he also attempted military reforms by bringing in outside French experts. Violence and unrest in Bulgaria continued unabated as local rulers continued to abuse populations throughout the empire. Now, this was in part leading to a greater Bulgarian national consciousness as Paisi Hilandarsky finished writing his Slavo-Bulgarian history. Farther north, Russia, under Catherine the Great, was expanding into Poland, leading to a war that brought in the Ottomans, ending 21 years of peace between them and Europe. Russia advanced south, taking over Moldavia and Wallachia, before aiding in a revolt in Greece, which was quickly put down. The Russians then won a major naval victory, further showing just how far behind the Ottoman navy has fallen. Now, at the moment we left off, the Ottomans had just lost a series of battles against the Russians in the Balkans, and the Mamluks had effectively declared their independence in Egypt. Now, as the war is looking increasingly worse for the Ottomans, the British are interested in intervening to restore balance because there's a possibility that the Persians might get involved, and the British are always concerned about maintaining some balance of power and preventing Russia from getting too strong. So, 
The additional question, though, is whether or not the Bulgarians might actually attempt another uprising. Obviously, the war is going bad for the Ottomans. And, well, the year is 1773, and that's where things stand. Now, over the past few years, Ali Bey had deposed the Ottoman governor, declaring his independence in Egypt and taking control of the western strip of the Arabian Peninsula across the Red Sea before advancing all the way into Syria. There, the Russian Mediterranean fleet was sent to assist them, shelling and then occupying Beirut after signing a formal alliance with Egypt. The Russians briefly occupied the city and took a substantial amount of loot back to their ships when they left. Except just around that time, the Russians also signed a truce with the Ottomans, bringing the fighting to a brief close. Essentially, Austria, Prussia, and Great Britain all wanted to prevent the Russians from expanding too much, signaling a real shift in how the European powers dealt with the Ottomans. The Ottomans have now gone from being viewed as a regular foreign power in a state which had to be kind of kept in control and prevented from, say, taking Vienna, to a state that needs to be kind of kept in balance, not much for its own sake, but basically to ensure that a European balance of power happens and that no European state becomes too powerful. So it's in essence, if you want to think about it this way, the rise and the expansion of Russia is what really forced the other European powers to completely shift their views of the Ottoman Empire. Now, Austria, for its part, actually managed to get some land from the Ottomans in this whole deal. Russia was convinced to do this because it feared the Austrians getting involved against the Russians on behalf of the Ottomans. Again, quite an ironic shift in European politics from just a few years earlier. But remember, all of this had started with fighting over Poland. And at this point, Russia could see that its ambitions in Poland were no longer realistic. Essentially, if Prussia and Austria decided to move against them, well, Russia didn't stand a chance against those two powerful states, as well as the Ottomans. So, as a result, Russia agreed to the first partition of Poland with Prussia and Austria. The three states combined took about 200,000 square kilometers of land from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which could do nothing to stop them. Now, Poland still existed, but with millions fewer people and far less land, as well as humiliation on the European stage. But with this deal, the incentive for the Russians to keep up the truce vanished, and so war resumed after barely a year of truce. Now, around this time, the Egyptian leader Ali Bey was killed in fighting near Cairo, and the Russians accepted a deal with local Lebanese chieftains to assist them in exchange for more cash. So Russia is kind of retaining some involvement in Lebanon. Soon, though, the Russians departed and the Ottomans re-exerted control there. The death of Ali Bey had really put an end to the prospect of a fully independent Egypt, and so much of the Middle East kind of returned to the status quo, despite everyone knowing that really they could never go back to the status quo and that the although they were unsuccessful, kind of these challenges to Ottoman authority there had been devastating. The war as a whole was really going badly, though, for the Ottomans. In the final days of 1773, to make things worse, Mustafa III died of a heart attack and then was succeeded by his 49-year-old brother, Abdul Hamid I. Entering into 1774, the Ottomans were still fighting to put down the last of the rebellions in Egypt and around Syria and Lebanon, 
while a minor Bulgarian uprising near Vidin was going on, as well as some sporadic fighting near the Persian frontier as the Russians decided to begin yet another spring offensive in that year, 1774. So, you know, the war is progressing. The war in the Middle East has largely ended. There's still mop-up operations there, but it's still not really going great for the Ottomans, and the prospect of this new Russian offensive is really terrifying for them. And they should be terrified, because with this offensive, for the first time, Russians made it south of the Danube onto Bulgarian lands. Their army was just 8,000, outnumbered 5 to 1 by a nearby Ottoman force. But the Ottomans were severely demoralized, facing poor logistics, even this close to Constantinople, which really does say something about how the army has deteriorated. That you know, this army that was previously able to, to operate pretty far up north into kind of Russian territory now is facing logistical problems in essentially what is now modern Bulgaria. And to make things even worse, the Ottoman army was furious that they had not been paid for a full year. So when the Ottoman Russian forces met north of Varna, the Russians, despite their much smaller numbers, actually attacked. The Ottomans sent in their cavalry, but it was fought off. The Russian cavalry then captured the Ottoman artillery as the Russians' own artillery devastated the Ottoman ranks. Soon, the Ottoman camp was captured and they retreated. As they pulled back, they were further harried and defeated by the Russians. Seeing that their position was hopeless, the Ottomans signed the Treaty of Kuchuk Kainarka just a month later. Now, based on how the war had progressed and the results of this treaty, well, there are no surprises here. Although Russia, it is interesting to say, had controlled Wallachia and Moldavia at this point, both were given back to the Ottomans. Frankly, the reason was that other European powers were not about to allow Russia to extend their territory that far into the Balkans. However, Russia was given the right to intervene in these principalities in case of Ottoman misrule, as well as the right to protect all Christians in the Ottoman realm, essentially giving Russia a potential casus belli, a reason to go to war, in the future pretty much whenever they want one. Because, I mean, let's face it. If the Russians want to find some example of misrule in the principalities or some case somewhere in the Ottoman Empire where Christians are being you know, treated badly, they're going to be able to find one. Bukovina, which was a part of Moldavia, was given to Austria. Even though it had not really participated in the war, its political pressure was enough to gain this concession. Again, this is a real change to how wars and how treaties worked in previous centuries. You didn't see as much of this kind of concern for European balance of power. Uh, you're seeing states you know, gain territory just to kind of create a sense of balance and to incentivize them not to join the war. Um, essentially, there's... The European world is kind of becoming more interconnected, uh, and we're kind of getting into the era of the Napoleonic Wars, the era of the Concert of Europe soon, you know, a few decades away and everything. And so we're really seeing that transition here. And th this treaty is the first case where you see just a dramatic shift in how these, you know, Russo-Ottoman and Austro-Ottoman wars ended in the past. Additionally, as a part of the treaty, the Crimean Cognate was now fully independent from the Ottomans, though in reality, this meant that they were be quickly going to become dependent on Russia, and that was essentially the plan. And so with that move, a center of Ottoman power to the north, but most importantly, a major source of quality cavalry for the Ottomans was taken away. Russia 
for its own, gained territory in the Northern Caucasus, as well as final complete control over Azov. We know they've been fighting back and forth over the sea in the port of Azov for decades at this point. And in addition, they gained the fortress cities which guarded the Straits of Kirsch, which leads, kind of connects the Sea of Azov to the Black Sea. So what this meant is that they now had complete access to the Black Sea. To help them there, they also gained the port city of Kherson on the northern shore of the Black Sea, kind of to the west of Crimea in modern Ukraine, not so far from where like Odessa is today. So in other words, taking this all together, the Black Sea was no longer an Ottoman lake. Previously, the Russians had gained, you know, tiny footholds on the Black Sea. They'd managed to get some ships out there. They had occasional access to some ports off the Sea of Azov. But now the Russians were a major power in the Black Sea. And they had several, not just one, but several ports which they could use there. And in addition, as a part of this whole deal, Russian merchant ships were now allowed to pass through the Dardanelles into the Mediterranean. So, as a whole, what this meant is that Russia finally had warm water ports that Peter the Great had dreamt of. Now, the final part of the treaty saw the Russians get paid a large sum of money by the Ottomans, money they clearly didn't have, but also saw Russia acknowledge the Sultan as the caliph of all Muslims, the first time a European power had ever done this. But far from suddenly granting the Sultan more legitimacy in the eyes of Muslims everywhere, well, frankly, the Sultan was now viewed with even more suspicion, having shown himself completely incapable of protecting the borders of the Islamic world. So really, this kind of concession on the part of Russia didn't translate into very much. Now, there were some other smaller provisions, but those were the major ones that are important to know. Overall, the Treaty of Kuchukainarka remade the European world in some ways. The Ottomans were suddenly cowed as they had never been before, not by the Habsburgs, but by the Russians. The reality that Russia, Prussia, and Austria were also now competing for the Balkans and Eastern Europe was confirmed. The Ottomans were a force in this game, but clearly a secondary force. For Bulgarians, it now made even more sense for them to look to Russia as a protector instead of the Habsburgs. They shared Slavic ethnicity, Orthodox religion, and Russia was now the legal protector of Christians in the Ottoman Empire. Now, Donald Quaitert summed up the legacy of the treaty in his book, The Ottoman Empire, 1700-1922, saying, quote, On a general level, the Ottomans' military and political power abruptly and visibly collapsed in the 1768-1774 war, one of the worst defeats in their history. Equally dangerously, the growing Wahhabi state in Arabia offered a spiritual as well as a military threat that jeopardized Ottoman administration of these distant provinces. Both the spiritual claims of the Wahhabi reformers as the heirs of true Islam and their early 19th century seizure of Mecca and Medina seemed to undermine Ottoman legitimacy. Thus, the Treaty of 1774, the continuing decline of Ottoman military power, and the Wahhabi threat all worked to fashion the caliphal position into a negotiating tool and means of bolstering the sultan's prestige. Essentially, the Ottoman rulers were able to make this claim to the caliphate because of their military prowess in past centuries, their longevity as a dynasty, their possession of the Muslim holy cities of Mecca and Medina, and because they remained the most powerful Islamic state to survive in the age of European imperialism. End quote. 
So we're seeing a lot of contradictions there. And I'm going to talk about the rise of Wahhabis in kind of Saudi Arabia a little bit later. So, you know, I'll talk about that soon. But we can see again how that treaty really remade things and how the position of the Ottoman Empire in the Muslim world, as well as in the European world, is changing dramatically. So the question is, how is the new Sultan Abdul Hamid I reacting to all of this? Well, he, like so many of his predecessors, grew up as a prisoner in the luxury of the palace. And that really, that raising kind of left him very uninterested in statecraft. He was religious and he abhorred war. And this probably made it easier for him to tell the Janissaries that they were not going to get their annual cash from the treasury because there was no money. But despite his pacifism and his disinterest in war and statecraft, Abdul Hamid could see that there was a dire need for military reforms. Now, he made attempts to reform the Janissaries, but as usual, without much success. Remember, the Janissaries were a tremendously powerful conservative force that were pretty much every time able to effectively block any reforms that would take away their power. Though, Abdul Hamid did manage to form a new artillery corps, so that's something, but still, it's not the wholesale reforms that the Ottoman military desperately needs. Now, in light of the Egyptian and Syrian rebellions which happened during the war, the new sultan also worked on strengthening Ottoman control over those territories as well as Ottoman Iraq. Around the late years of Mustafa III and into Abdul Hamid's reign, new policies also encouraged handicraft production in Bulgaria, something that will eventually help define its economy and relationship with Constantinople in the 19th century. Interestingly, though, the Treaty of Kuchuk Kainarka also played a role in leading to more overland trade between the Ottomans and Russia, trade in which Bulgarians played a crucial part, furthering economic development and the crucial development of a wealthy Bulgarian merchant class. So, for example, if you were to go to Plovdiv today and visit some of the amazing uh, kind of 19th century tradesmen and kind of merchant houses, you know, you'll see these beautiful murals painted of cities around the world that these Bulgarian merchants traveled to in their trade. And this treaty is really helping to kind of lay the bedrock for the world that allowed those Ottoman traders to travel around like that do this kind of have this economic activity and ultimately acquire the amount of wealth needed to build those beautiful homes. So if you've been to Plovdiv, you've seen those houses, this is kind of the origin of those houses and, and the kind of life that led around them. But overall, there was still some pretty occasional unrest in Bulgarian lands. Uh, the decades following the treaty were fairly quiet despite that, but you know, as we can imagine, the kind of local rule which was leading to all the abuses, which was leading to small rebellions and kind of general dis disinterest and uh, kind of upsetness on the part of the Bulgarian people, that was not going to go away. Though although this decade was fairly quiet, Crimea was an exception. Now there, the Tatars were just not interested in independence and repeatedly asked the Ottomans to re-exert control there. Eventually, this led to a Russian invasion in 1776, leading to the installation of a puppet ruler in 1777. Also, quick thing I have to mention here, 1776, as some of you well know, is the year of the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the beginning of the American Revolutionary War, just to kind of remind us what else is happening in history. Okay, I'm obviously biased, I'm an American, so I'm going to mention this, but eventually, as we all know, the United States will play a role in Bulgarian history, and so having an idea that this is starting here is good to know. Also, 
we're entering the kind of era of revolutions and those revolutions are kind of kicking off everywhere. You know, this is one of the first ones and eventually those revolutions and the revolutionary ideas that they produce will come to Bulgaria. So there is a connection. Now getting back to Crimea, the new puppet ruler allowed the Russians to move in and settle in Crimea, leading to a revolt against him. But the army sent against the rebels simply joined them. So it looked like the Crimean Khan was going to be overthrown and the Ottomans were finally persuaded to intervene. Now, ostensibly, the Ottomans were intervening to protect Crimean independence as guaranteed by the treaty. But yeah, the Russians weren't going to buy that or really allow it to happen. And so they got there first. Russian, sol Russian soldiers entered the area, crushed the rebellion, and reinstalled their puppet to rule the Tatar state. Both all this basically before the Ottomans even arrived. When the Ottoman fleet did arrive, there was a bit of sporadic fighting between them and the Russians, but it didn't escalate into a full-scale war. The next year, 1779, both sides came together to sign the Treaty of Aina Lulkavak, promising not to intervene in Crimean politics. But Catherine the Great clearly didn't take that treaty very seriously. Two years later, there was yet another rebellion in Crimea, which led to another Russian intervention. Now, at this point, the Russians decided to simply annex Crimea because, well, that just seemed like the most practical thing to do. Once she had assurances that Sweden would not intervene or ally with the Ottomans against her if she was to make the move, Empress Catherine annexed Crimea in 1783. There was next to nothing the Ottomans could do to stop them, and the local population at this point was frankly too exhausted from so many rebellions to do anything either. Within a year, the Ottomans were forced to recognize the new status quo. A new Austro-Russian alliance was also signed in 1781, making it even harder for the Ottomans to make any kind of a move because, well, they threatened a two-front war with the Austrian Empire and the Russian one. Now, it is worth noting here, though, that Austria was rather annoyed that it hadn't gotten anything when Russia annexed Crimea. Again, this is a new kind of status quo, a new sense of how things should be in European politics. If your neighbor gains some territory, well, you should gain some territory, too, to maintain a balance of power. Now, that annexation of Crimea also affected Bulgaria because with the loss of Crimea, the Ottomans lost not just access to those cavalry and things, but also to quite a bit of grain production. And so the Ottomans pushed a lot more grain production into Dobruja, which you'll know the northern part is now part of Romania, southern part is part of Bulgaria. So that land's kind of economic focus shifted in response to this. Now, 1783 also saw American victory in the Revolutionary War. So from this point, the United States will begin to enter our story in small ways. 1783 also saw yet more Bulgarian revolts and violence, followed by even more in 1785, 1786, and 1787. Now, these are times when the incidents led to deaths of Ottoman officials and sustained fighting over further local misrules. So not only are you having more and more of these small revolts and this, you know, these kind of outbursts of violence, but they're getting a bit more intense as well. Now, in the meantime, back on the Arabian Peninsula, I said I'd get to that, the Saudi Wahhab state had been expanding. Now, just like that quote mentioned, you know, they soon were going to take Mecca and Medina. But by 1786, you can see on a map on the website just how large they were. 
They now controlled about half of the Arabian Peninsula and were fast becoming a religious and a military challenger to the Ottomans in the region. Now in 1787, Catherine the Grape made a triumphal procession into newly annexed Crimea and the new Russia territories, uh, which were kind of the lands just above Crimea. She spent six months touring the region to see how its development was going, and, in case you're wondering, this is where we get the expression a Potemkin village, as these villages were allegedly put up by Potemkin to impress Catherine during this visit. Also during the trip, she met with Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II. Now, the two discussed Catherine's proposed solution to the ever-growing Eastern question, that is, what should be done with the Ottoman territories? This Eastern question is going to define a huge chunk of European politics for the next century, so pay attention to it. Now, Catherine envisioned dividing the Ottoman lands between Russia and Austria, as well as re-establishing a Byzantine empire in Constantinople, but for now that was still just an idea. But still, even the existence of that idea was enough to enrage the Ottomans once word leaked about the Russian and Austrian intentions. At this point, the Ottomans had had enough of their mistreatment at the hand of the Russians following the end of the last war. Obviously, the whole Crimean situation, the Russians pretty much just did whatever they liked and treated the Ottomans very badly. And so, in 1787, the Ottomans demanded the Russians leave Crimea and all their territories on the Black Sea. Now, no big shock here, Russia said no, and responded by declaring war. Now, 13 years after Kuchuk Russia and the Ottomans were at war again, but this time with Austria as a Russian ally. Now, in September and October of that year, the Ottomans attempted amphibious attacks on the southern Ukrainian coast against Russia, but were repulsed. In the first months of the next year, Austria declared war. It took them a little longer. Now, This war may have been looking bad for the Ottomans, but it was also a very bad time for the Austrians, who faced a revolt in Belgium and really deep concerns over the growing power of Prussia. During 1788, Russia went on the offensive and quickly overran much of Moldavia. In May, they laid siege to Ovchakov, near where the Ottomans had attacked and where the Bug River flows into the Black Sea. The siege dragged on throughout the year as the Ottomans failed to break out and the conditions of both armies deteriorated. Over that summer, the Ottomans concentrated their forces in Belgrade and attacked the Austrian-controlled Banat region, which, remember, had been annexed after the previous war. A Serbian corps was established to help fight the Ottomans, but overall, still, despite the Serbs' enthusiasm, the Austrians did very little in the first real year of the war but they did manage to get embroiled in an embarrassingly friendly fire incident at the Battle of Karanseves. Now, I can't remember what channel it was from, but there was a very funny, silly kind of YouTube video about it. So try to look that up. It's like the, the most embarrassing battle of all time, something like that. But essentially, besides that, the Ottomans did take some territory in Banat, partially because the Austrians just made themselves look like utter fools at that battle. Finally, in December of that year, the Russians mounted a full assault and finally took the city, resulting in thousands of deaths and the capture of many soldiers from the Ottomans. Now, the civilians in the captured cities were massacred by the Russians. But by 1789, the Ottomans were, as you can see, really doing badly against the Russians, but finding some success against the hesitant Austrians. 
Still, the Ottomans were struggling to defend Wallachia and Moldavia against attacks from two directions by both their empires that they were facing. The main Ottoman goal at this moment was really just to prevent Austrian and Russian forces from linking up in Moldavia. And to this end, an Ottoman force of 30,000 marched between two smaller forces of 18,000 Austrians and 7,000 Russians to prevent exactly that from happening. When they met, the Russians and Austrians employed infantry squares. This is something they had learned that the Ottomans could breach and destroy with their infantry deployed in lines. So the Ottomans generally had pretty good cavalry, and if the Russians and Austrians fought in lines, the Ottomans tore right through them. But these squares helped offset the power of that cavalry and really made a difference. So when the armies met, even though the Ottomans again had a substantial numerical advantage and were dug in, excellent allied artillery and musket volleys prevented the Ottomans from being able to move from their positions. Soon, the Ottomans were outflanked and driven from the field. But the Allies didn't have enough supplies to really pursue the fleeing Ottoman army. But the Ottomans were still not gone from Moldavia, and a new Grand Vizier was appointed to lead the war effort. That Vizier quickly raised 100,000 soldiers and leapt back into the, fir- into the battle later that year. He marched his soldiers through the night so they could face the Austrians, who he considered to be easily beat. Hearing of this, the Russians also marched for long hours to reach and help their allies before disaster could strike, even though their combined armies were still only about a quarter of what the Ottomans had in the field. Now when they met, once again infantry squares and superior artillery had their effect. The allies cut the Ottomans in two and took their camp, leading to the Ottoman army fleeing. The retreating Ottomans left all of their baggage and artillery and fled south of the Danube effectively leaving Wallachia and Moldavia entirely in Allied hands. Elsewhere, the Ottomans invaded Austrian-held Bosnia, but were pushed back. Around the same time, the Austrians finally attacked Belgrade. In September, a massive 120,000-man Austrian force crossed the Sava River to put the fortress city to siege, though an entire 33,000 were apparently out of commission due to disease. Now, Throughout September, the Austrians bombarded the city and then slowly took its outer suburbs while being delayed by rains. By early October, the Ottomans were in bad shape, ravaged by disease and Austrian artillery alike. They demanded several pauses in the fighting before finally surrendering. The Austrians advanced further south and were soon in possession of Serbia as far south as Nish, as well as all of Wallachia. But now, Prussia was getting concerned about these huge Austrian gains and began to explore the idea of allying with the Ottomans to attack the Austrian rear. Obviously, this was a terrifying prospect for the Austrians, and it effectively forced them to withdraw much of their forces from the Ottoman front in order to place them in Bohemia to defend against a possible Prussian attack. Then, in 1790, the Holy Roman Emperor died and was succeeded by his brother Leopold II. With the Ottomans facing their own pressure from a new Greek revolt, the Austrians and the Ottomans signed a truce in July of 1790. Now at this moment, the future of the war hung in the balance. Would the Prussians get involved? Would Russia continue to fight alone? Would the truce between Austria and the Ottomans even last? And of course, that eternal question for us, what would the Bulgarians do? Austrian forces may have withdrawn, but they were still only in niche while Russian forces were about to enter northern Dobruja. 
So with two huge allied forces just on their doorsteps, would the Bulgarians stay quiet or would they rise up? Then, to cap it all off, Abdul Hamid I finally died and was replaced by his 26-year-old nephew, Selim III. Next time, we'll see where all of this leads. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, and I'll see you in the next one.